Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Come join the fun, we're talking about our lives. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. My guest today has amazing insight, insight into a world that few people ever see. He was the Deputy Director of the CIA Counterterrorism Center and the FBI Security Branch, and he's also frequently seen as a commentator on CNN. He has written a book entitled Black Sight, the CIA in the Post-9-11 World, which offers a glimpse into the development of and the management of secret CIA detention centers during the War on Terror. Philip Mudd, welcome. Thanks for having me today. I'm glad to have you here. So kind of setting the stage for the development of the black sites, you described the budget cuts following the Cold War and that intelligence was, was really downsized. And then as increasing intelligence showed that al-Qaeda and especially Osama bin Laden were a threat, the requests that the agency made for additional funding to counter terrorism were denied, and it was, it was kind of determined that terrorism was a law enforcement effort. And so what was the bar that the Oval Office wanted the CIA to meet as far as funding and giving more effort to counterterrorism intelligence efforts? Well, I'm not sure you could have defined a bar before 9-11. I don't blame Washington for what happened in the 90s. Oh, sure. We're what we call the peace dividend, and everybody mm-hmm. was taking hits. Remember, there was a, a famous book then, the Fukuyama book, that talked about the end of civilization, you know, that the, the great bear had fallen, and people thought that the rest of the threats we would face were relatively modest by comparison. Right. So the CIA tried to invest in terrorism, but nobody had that much money back then. It was sort of, I wouldn't say it was a depressing period. I was at the CIA, but I would say it was sort of searching for a mission when the mm-hmm. post-Cold War mission kind of declined. And, and, and certainly it was not a, there, there's no way that anyone could have um, predicted exactly what was going to happen. Unfortunately, your actions were limited because, uh, you know, in in the 70s, congressional oversight had revealed involvement in arms sales and assassinations, and so the CIA had very strict rules that were barred from killing anyone uh, in any of your operations, so the only option that you had was to capture, even for a high-profile terrorist at the time. Um, How did that limit your options as to what you could do? Well, let me me give you a, a scenario. You're sitting there collecting intelligence. Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, you know, we didn't have, the U.S. didn't have a diplomatic presence in Afghanistan. There was not an intelligence presence in Afghanistan. The CIA had contacts in, in the country, but, you know, it's pretty hard to run contacts when, when your ability to actually go into the country is very limited. So if you're working in that environment and you pick up shadowy intelligence that there are training camps and bin Laden might be at one of those training camps, Think of your options. People were very risk-averse. Are you going to run a raid into that training camp? People are going to say, as they did, you know, what if a bunch of Marines get killed? Right. Are you going to do a kill operation on that camp? People are going to say, well, we don't go around the world just firing missiles to kill terrorists. We don't assassinate terrorists. All the options that became so self-evident after 9-11, people looked around and I think understandably said, man, why would the U.S. do Why do we want to get involved in a shooting war halfway around the world? We can handle this by other means. 
Definitely, definitely. And so after 9-11, once the intelligence community was, was asked to be more aggressive and, and essentially the response was, you want aggressive? We'll show you aggressive. That, that and, is correct, yes. And information gathering drones were suddenly armed and informants in the terrorist groups were fiercely protected. And it gave a lot of green lights that the agency didn't have before. Uh, and it ended up turning the CIA into a, a paramilitary organization that was helping to run a war. So tell me a little bit about the transition from the 90s when you had so many constraints to this new post-9-11 organization. That's in some ways the main reason I wanted to write the book, aside from the fact that I just like to write it. Mm -hmm. Trying to step back in time and explain what it felt like beyond the facts of what happened at detention facilities. I thought that would be lost if I didn't talk to my friends. Everything changed overnight. Think of running a company when people say, all of a sudden your budget's going to go up by multiples. Your mission changes fundamentally. You're not, you're not collecting against a slow-moving target like what the Russians are doing in developing missiles. You're collecting against a target that changes day by day. You're not collecting against a target that has to do with stuff 5,000 miles away. It might have to do with stuff in Chicago or New York. Sure. Your time frame is, is hours or days. If somebody gets through the net, somebody in New York is going to die. So it's a life-and-death mission. People had to adopt an entirely new mission with, an, with a ton of money, and a lot of latitude to act, but within days. I mean, it was just, I just remember the time people saying, we're going to shift around the agency. We're arming drones. We're going to build our own uh, uh, facilities to, to hold prisoners. It was like a sea change overnight for a place that had been hit by budget cuts for a decade. That's amazing. And, and, and so it, it grew, and there were new programs implemented, and it, finally what really kind of started the the program is, is, is what you call the, the interrogation centers. Uh, what really got that started was that a prisoner had died in custody, and suddenly they were like, we've got to have all these new techniques and new regulations in effect. And they put in a chain of command that was kind of unprecedented. So tell us kind of about the change in communication structure and, and how, they, how they put the rules into place as the program was implemented. There's a, there's a, man, there's so many things that happen. There are a couple of things. You mentioned one, which is at a sort of informal facility in Afghanistan before formal detention facilities were established by the CIA. A prisoner died from uh, from cold. He died overnight. He was chained to a concrete floor. Uh, by that time, the CIA had already begun capturing some high-level Al-Qaeda prisoners, and there were conversations about not only the logistics of, you know, we collect intelligence. How are we supposed to build, build jails? Where are you going to build them? What are the right. rules for our jails? But also the back and forth that ended up lasting for years, with the, particularly with the Department of Justice, to say, what's the law say? What are we allowed to do? What are the limits of what, what, what we're allowed to do? People judge harshly what the CIA did at that point, but the, the message from Congress and from the White House was if you don't take advantage of every aspect of the law and all the latitude you're giving us, you're not doing what, you, what, what we want you to do. The, the, the message was... Be as aggressive as you can. Don't shy away from getting near the sidelines on the field. In fact, get as close as you can. So that's when the program started uh, in, with that attitude in mid-2002. And you, had, you, you did have a lot more leeway with prisoners than, say, the U.S. criminal justice system. And so your options were to, you said, release prisoners or hold them indefinitely, or release them to their home countries. And so letting them go in any way took the intelligence gathering out of American hands. And sometimes other governments had more leeway to interrogate more harshly. And so how did you make the calculation with each individual prisoner uh, what you were going to do with them? 
the first calculation had to be I mean, interrogating a prisoner at CI facilities, which have now been closed for more than a decade, but interrogating a prisoner is really labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. You really have to understand the individual. Aside from creating a physical location where they have their own cells, feeding them, providing medical care, we provided dental care. Some of them got eyeglasses. You know, the security around the facility. Aside from that, you have to build every day a package of questions around not only what that prisoner knows, but what his resistance is, where he is in the interrogation cycle. It was a complicated process. That, you know, there are 100-plus prisoners that went into the CIA secret programs. A lot more prisoners were captured, but we either didn't know enough about them to interrogate them properly, or more significantly, most of them were not worth it. You know, they just didn't have the level of intelligence that would lead you to dedicate that, those kind of resources. I think people would not would be surprised at how much effort went into each interrogation with, with each prisoner. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's psychology. It's knowledge. It's where they are in the cycle. It, it was remarkable. Yeah, and you, you, you talk about in the book how these techniques were carefully prepared using psychologists and were, were targeting to, to get the exact information that you wanted and using various methods. And, and a lot of the methods of enhanced interrogation were really saved for the most people who had the most information. So if you had a really high-profile prisoner in there, what information did you want to get from him and how were you going to get it? You would think on the surface, if, if you watch the movies, that the questions would be pretty simple. Where's Bin Laden and where's the next big attack? That typically wasn't what happened during an interrogation. First of all, the, the prisoners didn't break. The word we used was compliant. Will they answer a question truthfully? By mm-hmm. not breaking, what I mean is they wouldn't talk about Bin Laden. They just wouldn't. Um, so that wasn't necessarily on the table, and a lot of them might not know about the next attack. Right. So the questions were really granular. Uh, over time, you'd ask questions about who have you met over the past years? Who have you trained? What were their names? What passports do they carry? Even a fragment. I trained mm-hmm. somebody named John who had a German passport. Well, when was that? In 1998. All this, for an intelligence officer, that's gold because you're going to combine that with loads of other data from other uh, prisoners, from uh, intercepted communications, from friendly security services around the world. And maybe in a matter of hours or days, you're going to figure out who that John was. Just based on somebody saying, I knew a guy named John with a German passport in 1998. I mean, that actually would be more than we would get in a lot of cases. Sure. I trained somebody who was in Germany, had blonde hair, and he was in his 20s. And I trained him three years ago. That's really important. So just those fragments to help you build an understanding of the network were really important. That's the kind of stuff we got. So it really is a puzzle of, of putting information together and, and working as a team. You would get the information from the prisoners, and then you would go out and, and hopefully capture uh, additional people, people that you found out were involved through these interrogations. So once you had a target that you knew was out there in the world, how did you, how did you find them and catch them? Oof. Uh, think of putting up a net. Um, I mean, one of the untold stories of those years was with the cooperation from services in the Middle East and Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia. The cooperation, when people see threat to their own countries, they tend to cooperate. It wasn't necessarily people who would who liked us, but mm-hmm. threat tends to motivate people. So typically you're going to put together a package is what we would call it, an understanding that John Doe in Southeast Asia is, uh, a serious plotter. That is, he's trying to blow up innocent people. 
okay, how do we understand what we call this pattern of life? Where mm-hmm. does he live? Where might he live? How does he communicate? And then you have to depend on mistakes. We lived on mistakes. He talks to the wrong person. He talks on the wrong email. Once you start to get a pattern of life, that you can think of the net sort of closing. You might put a, a location under surveillance, mm-hmm. and you've got to get the local guys involved too, typically because when you capture him, you don't want them following you around. You can do that once. You don't want them spending more time following you than they, than they do following terrorists. And you might also want to turn over a lot of the people you captured to them. As I said, the CIA didn't want to hold most of the people they captured. So when you ran a capture operation, the local guys, that is the local country, would be there with their security services picking people up and maybe putting them through their own judicial process. It was really complicated. It sounds so. And, and, and you say in the book that no intelligence deal is ever clean. What do you mean by that? Well, everybody wants something. They mm-hmm. want money. They want training. They want a favor from the U.S. government down to the micro level. You're cooperating with somebody uh, in a service. They want their kid to go to college in America. They want help for their mother who can't get medicine. They want money because they want to retire. Uh, everybody will give you information with an angle on it. The terrorist isn't going to give you all information on a plot that he knows. He might be just giving up stuff that he thinks isn't important. He thinks that telling you he trained John three years ago is not enough information for you to act on. So it's intelligence is a world of prisms, understanding what people's motivations are, taking, as you mentioned, puzzle, it's like a kaleidoscope, mm-hmm. taking a bunch of information and slowly focusing it into a picture that allows you to take down a cell in a city halfway around the world. Everybody's got a motivation. Everybody's got an angle. Everybody's got an ax. Everybody's a liar. And you just got to take all that. And I spent 25 years in the business and realized that people who lie occasionally tell you the truth, and their lies are sometimes as valuable as the truth. So why did they choose not to tell you where they traveled three years ago? Why did they skip that? That means they don't want you to know, which means that might have been the most important place they ever went to. That's interesting. Absolutely. And so this is, intelligence has been been going on for for centuries, perhaps millenniums, and uh, the CIA really just came to be after World War II. What was the um, impetus for developing the CIA in the first place post-World War II? Was it the Cold War? Origins of the CIA go back to intelligence gathering against the Nazis in World War II. And then in 1947, Mm -hmm. the law was passed saying, you know, we actually need to understand adversaries, especially like the emerging Soviet Union. Uh, That accelerated with not only the Soviet Union and their missile and nuclear programs, but with the Cold War extending to Latin America and Africa places like Angola, places like Nicaragua going into the 60s, 70s, 80s. The the challenge with that was it's a big target, the Soviet Union. It's slow moving. Things don't move overnight. Typically involves a large bureaucracy in the Kremlin. Think of the contrast to counterterrorism. It's a small target. It's very fast moving. It doesn't involve a bureaucracy. It involves identifying one person 10,000 miles away and where they're living today so that Mm -hmm. you can capture tomorrow. Intelligence isn't intelligence. Those are two very different kinds of collecting information. They have common characteristics like intercepted communications and human sources. But, man, the world after 9-11 was different than in the 1990s. Absolutely. And then once this, once this program was uncovered and the public found out about it, it was, it was eventually discontinued. And did, that, did you find that that curtailed intelligence effort? That's a good question. Um, I think my 
friends would have, my colleagues would have differing opinions on that. Interrogating a prisoner, whether you think they're lying or not, is extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. It gets less valuable after, you know, not, I didn't think we were winning until about 2004, 2005. I thought we were losing to Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a good understanding of the organization. As time went on and we gathered more and more intercepted communications, picked up more and more laptops, uh, built relationships with foreign services, built the, see, I didn't have very good human informants in 2001, 2002, got better human informants. I think the value, the requirement or the need for interrogations diminished. So, yeah, you could still get great intelligence value from interrogating someone, but our ability, to, our understanding of Al-Qaeda and ISIS is light years from where it was in, in, in 01 and 02 when I, I thought we were really in trouble. Right. Uh, just, so I, I think we're in a decent place right now. And and that's good. And to have, like you said, the human intelligence, the sources to tell you what's going on is is amazing. And so, are there are there any detainees? I know that we just in Syria pulled out our troops, and that some of the ISIS prisoners in there are coming out. How how do we get intelligence about that? Not the way we used to. Obviously, there are no more CIA facilities. You have a couple of options. One I mentioned before, for example, if you pull somebody from Europe out of, a, out of an ISIS facility in Syria, you can ask the Europeans, do you want this person? Do you want not only to prosecute them, but can we work with you to see if they'll talk? If somebody's captured on the, on the battlefield, the military can interview them or interrogate them, but not the way the CIA did. People have talked about whether other prisoners need to go to Guantanamo. I would caution them on that. You might have the U.S. interrogating them at Guantanamo, but you're going to have the same questions we've faced now for 17 years. What the heck are you going to do with them at the end? Right. You know, I, I don't think it's right to hold people forever if you're not going to charge them. So, yeah, you can talk to them in methods that are obviously far less aggressive than the CIA had. If some of them will want to talk, some of them are going to be scared. But uh, at some point, you've got to put somebody in the judicial process or let them go. You can't hold them forever. Right. Absolutely, and and we're we're sadly running out of time. But I do. There's one thing in the, you said in the book that really stood out to me is that history is better with facts than feelings. Do you think that the CIA was unfairly judged for basically what were wartime efforts? I guess the easy answer is yes. I think judgment's okay. Mm-hmm. People saying we should never do that again. I'm com- uncomfortable with what America did. I get that. You know, when I do speeches, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. What I don't appreciate is people saying, I would have done it differently in 01 and 02. And my answer is, you don't represent the majority of America. Right. People look in the mirror and they say, America, you know, I represent America and you guys did things I never would have done. And my answer is, that's simply not correct. The elected mm-hmm. officials in this country were in a different place 17 years ago. So looking back, I find it a little frustrating. But judging America going forward, that is, let's learn from the past and realize we don't want to do that again. I'm comfortable with that. We've had a chance to look back, and I think part of that's because of intelligence successes. We haven't had another catastrophic event. Right. So, yeah, I think we're, you know, looking, looking forward to saying the CIA should never do that again. I'm okay with that. All right. Excellent. Well, you're, you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair at the end of the month. Tell me about that. Well, I'm pretty excited. My hometown, so I'm excited to go down and do some wine tasting and see some friends and get grilled at, at the Miami Book Fair. <laughs> that will be wonderful. Well, the title of the book, again, is Black Sight, the CIA in the Post-9-11 World. Philip Mudd, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for some good questions. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And to all the listeners out there, this is Shannon Fisher for Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. I'll see you next time.